With so many stories of strength, perseverance, and life-changing journeys, I knew I had to help share the good in the world. My name is Christine Petrella, and I'm fortunate enough to host a podcast where I can speak with guests who have made such a large impact in their communities by giving back and being so generous to causes that need our attention. I want my listeners to know that when I spoke with my next guest, JD, about this podcast, he mentioned he is an open book and he's in a place where he can talk about his experiences and his journey. And I just want to give a bit of a trigger warning to anyone who may not be in the right place right now to hear stories about suicide, child abuse, and addiction. If this is you, I will have plenty of links on my website that will provide resources that we discussed during this podcast. J.D. Dilks, the writer, podcaster, founder of a nonprofit mental health meeting center. J.D., how's it going today? Good. How are you? I am very good. I met you through a podcasting forum, and I kind of threw it out there to say I'm looking for someone in the podcasting community who wants to talk about how they give back to their communities. And J.D., you reached out to me, and you were like, I got a story for you. And it's really incredible to hear your experiences, your journey, and what you've been through, your perseverance. It was something that I felt very drawn to be able to share your story and to learn more. And a lot of the listeners on my podcast want to hear those stories of good. So to understand more about how you came to you know, open this facility in your small town, I think we need to understand a little bit more about you and how you got to this story. So JD, I'll leave it up to you. I mean, where do we start? I had plenty of experience with dealing with mental health and addiction. Me personally, I drank alcoholically for 20 years from 11 to 31. And I used pills, you know, as an addict, daily functioning, had a job the entire time from 21 to 31. So, you know, I have plenty of experience and background in addiction. I haven't touched pills in over three and a half years. I haven't had a drink in over 20 months. So, you know, I have a lot of experience on how to deal with that recovery also. Plus, my situation is unique because I use cannabis in my recovery. And that's still kind of like not taboo, but it's considered harm reduction. And harm reduction as a whole, whether it's cannabis or whether it's methadone or Vivitrol, any kind of medically assisted treatment, MAT treatment, they call it. That's all a stigma, even inside recovery. So I'm like a walking stigma when it comes to my addiction and my recovery. And with mental health, my first fiance was my childhood best friend. And she was bipolar, schizophrenic, and an alcoholic. And she took her own life six years ago, July 2015. And my wife now, she deals with mental illness. She was just diagnosed with MS a couple months ago as well. Along with she is in recovery. She's 20 months clean and sober. You know, we started this mental health meeting center together back in May. Really, we opened in July, but we started it in May and opened in July. And we host AA here, NA here, trauma meetings here, LGBTQ plus meetings here, medical marijuana meetings, mental health meetings, name it, we do it, arts and crafts. So she does tarot and meditation meetings. And uh, she does like witchcraft stuff, crystals and all that, and pendulums. I don't know what they... I don't know. She makes spells and, you know, it's cool. And I do my podcast and I have a studio set up on the other side. And I do two different podcasts out of here. And I've listened to a few of your episodes. 
When you open this facility in this journey of yours, at what point did you say, I'm ready, I'm clean, and I want to open this facility with my wife? It was the first month of quarantine, within a month. So I quit drugs and alcohol April 25th, 2018. And I was clean and sober for 13 months. I went out drinking, not went out drinking, it's called went out when you leave AA and you start drinking again. So I went out is the term on my 13 month. You know, I was getting a lot of pushback about my cannabis use. You know, I don't even smoke it. I don't smoke weed. I use little capsules because I changed my relationship with it. I don't want to smoke. I use little capsules. But anyway, we can even get to that. But the point is, they weren't really accepting my recovery. It took a toll on my recovery. And I left the program and I started drinking again. And I didn't drink alcoholically in that nine months. I'm a former comedian. So I went to comedy shows. I would go to pool parties or whatever. It wasn't like drinking alcoholically. It was just drinking like a regular person. And then around nine months, I woke up with a hangover. And I said, well, I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't want to have hangovers. I wasn't supposed to drink a bottle of Jack. And that's what happened. So it was February 29th, which Leap Day is a great, you know, sober birthday because you only get one every four years. So I said to my wife, I want to quit drinking again. And she said, I'll quit with you. So we both quit together. And then within a few weeks, I was like, I want to go to meetings again. But quarantine had just happened. And on top of that, AA wasn't accepting of me before. You know, so I was like, I want to have my own meetings. So that's kind of where the ideas started and brewed and where we started workshopping ideas, where we would go and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we spent our quarantine doing was planning. <laughs> Are these in-person meetings or did you have to do these virtually? We do them in person. We plan on doing virtually soon. We just started creating Facebook groups within like our business page. This way, like she has like a group self-love through tarot where that's where she sets up tarot readings and all that kind of stuff and her tarot podcast. And then I started one for medical marijuana. This way we could do virtual meetings for medical marijuana patients. Then maybe they can't come in. Maybe they have an illness where they can't be around a lot of people. So we just started to get that going so that we could do virtual, but it's 100% in person as of right now. That's great. Because when you start, when we all started going into quarantine and everything was, we were unsure of where the future was going. And I remember I was supposed to go on a trip to Florida and we ended up obviously canceling it. I remember telling my father like, oh, we'll just reschedule in a couple of weeks when this is all over. No clue. And everyone is just you know, ready to get out there and everyone's ready to be back in person, but you can't. And I can't imagine for anyone struggling with addictions that they need that help and maybe the resources just weren't ready to go online. So for you to have this in person and for you to be someone who was already so experienced and someone who became sober and understood what that meant, it probably meant the world to anyone coming in to your meetings that you had the experience and you really cared about the community. You cared about what they were going through. And I know addicts, just like any other humans, they don't all come from the same place. There's no mold that will fit. So some were born out of trauma and some were born out of grief and some just came from wonderful families and very supportive families and they just liked that high. They just, they liked the feeling. So earlier you had mentioned at 11 is kind of when you started really experimenting with alcohol, is it? Do you mind me asking? I mean, at 11, I just, that seems so young. 
Well, yeah. And I was one of those kids that I was the oldest of three and I wanted to experiment and I wanted to like branch out and find things out on my own. At 11, I was obsessed with The Outsiders. My friend would sleep over and we would watch The Outsiders and we were like, we should drink like them. So we stole like Captain Morgan's from my parents' basement. My first ever drink at 11 was Captain Coke. You didn't start like with a beer. Yeah. You went right for the hard stuff. I'm an alcoholic. I go right into it. But what makes me an alcoholic is what happened at 12. And that is that the first person I knew died. And I don't know any of this at the time. I know this now looking back, doing the steps. The steps were huge. But looking back, I found out through retrospect at 12, the first friend I knew died. I didn't know any grandparents had died. Everyone was still alive. And somebody my age was hit by a car and he died. I didn't know how to take it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And at the time, this was 96, 97. So you're told to just push it down, you know, be a man. You can't have feelings as a man then. So I pushed things down and I was like, you know what? I know what will fix this. I'll drink. We'll get drunk and we'll feel better. So I taught myself, nobody else, a learned behavior at 12 years old that when you drink, your problems go away. So anytime I faced grief from then on, it was, you know, you drank over it. And then it starts being, well, I'm going to celebrate with alcohol. Oh, I got a big grade. You know, by the time I was a senior in high school, we were drinking almost every single night. It was to party most of the time, but still like... I was still very depressed inside and I was trying to be friends with everybody. And when you try to be friends with everybody, you end up going to that party, you drink, you go to that party and you drink. And I wasn't drinking and driving. I would always make sure I was walking to the parties. You know, I lived in a small town outside of Philly. You know, you could walk everywhere where we grew up. So we were fortunate in that none of us were really drinking and driving, but it was very easy to get whatever we wanted all the time living that close to a city. I grew up two miles from Camden, New Jersey. It was very easy to get alcohol whenever I want. And you're in that environment. It sounds like your friends were kind of doing similar things. They were going out and partying with you. And you mentioned earlier, I mean, I I remember the stress being in high school, wanting to fit in and wanting to make everybody happy and thinking that you're so cool and you're doing the cool things. When in reality, we're just setting ourselves back. And you made a good point earlier, as boys, you're really told, you know, suck it up or don't cry. Don't let people see your feelings. Do you feel that that is still the case? Or are we slowly getting rid of that? I would like to say we are trying to slowly get rid of that. You know, there's people like my father, you know, we make fun of him for crying watching Legally Blonde. It's not a thing. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's, is there a specific scene that gets him? Or when that... L wins. Yeah, when L wins, he's a mess. You know, it's stuff like that. So now it's more acceptable for my family. You know, we are okay with crying and talking about crying all the time. And that's been that way. I would say since my grandfather died, my dad's died like a decade ago. And that's when I feel like my dad was able to even say, I love you, because I think he realized like what happens when you don't hear I love you out loud all the time. And it's not that him and his dad had a bad relationship. It's a product of your generation. I don't blame anyone's father for you know not saying I love you enough or telling us not to cry or anything, because that's what they were told. And they were hit when they did it. At least they weren't hitting us when we did it. They were just talking to us sternly about you know being a man. 
And it is what it is. It's, we're all products of our generation. So now it's my turn to make sure that my seven-year-old knows it's okay to you know, show his emotions. That's that corner. You want to hope that there's enough people like me that want to teach your son it's okay to show your emotions, but it's not okay to yell at me about it, but it's okay to be upset. You know, and there's a difference in that. And ask him, how does that make you feel? What does that mean to you? And asking your kid, you know, my kid's in second grade and we co-parent with his dad. And, you know, there's things that, you know, I jumped into being a dad of five and it always boggled my mind. A lot of parents, the way they talked about things they can't say to their kids, you know, because I'm very um, pro LGBTQ, a big ally. Like I said, we have meetings specifically for them. And I'm at all their meetings mostly, unless I have an NA thing, I'm there. And it's such a big part of the community that I am so proud of because of how much attention that needs to go there and it's not there. So the biggest thing you always hear about a lot of parents, like, what am I going to tell my kid? You know, we live in Pennsylvania, kind of near Williamsport, where Little League World Series is. And they were just in the paper around here recently because during Pride Month, they put on the library a display for Pride books. And a lot of the parents were up in arms. What am I going to say to my kid? Yeah, explain it. It's easy. Our kid, he knows somebody who's a teenager that has transitioned. And so he knows that person as both a girl and now a boy. And he flat out asked us, but this person, you know, they were blah, blah, blah. Now they're, and I'm like, yeah, buddy, sometimes you're born one gender and then you realize you're not that gender, you're more comfortable than the other. So you switch. And then that's why now, you know, she is he. He goes, oh, okay, that makes sense. That was it. They just want to know. They're kids. They just have questions. And you just give them answers. When you make it awkward, they're going to take it awkward. Just answer the question. That's so true. That's a great way to parent. And it reminds me of one of the guests that you had, Jillian, who said, I believe it was, once you become aware of something, it's like a tube of toothpaste. <laughs> you know, yeah, you can't, you get can't that put it back, back in. in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Jill. I'm so glad you watched that. I did, yeah. And she was just talking about the moment where she became more aware of the meaning behind transgender because people were talking about it. And it was a real defining moment for me because I've never had to go through a realization like that. And I think when the resources like the Williamsport Library, who are putting out those resources and showing you that it is okay, and you know we are talking about this. Now, your centers host meetings for LGBTQIA+. So when these individuals come to your meetings, they're probably broken mentally, physically, and they're looking for your team to provide guidance. So how do you lay that foundation? I wouldn't even call it a team. I would just say they're looking for a community. They're looking to be able to walk into doors and not being pointed at for who they are, as opposed to being accepted and welcomed for who they are. You know, there are regulars that are adults that are here. There's even someone recently that transitioned at 41. She just transitioned at 41, married. Their wife is completely on board and like, accepting, and it's amazing. Our town just held its first ever outfest. It was a rainy day, unfortunately, but it is what it is. But the drag show was still amazing that they put on. You know, luckily that was covered. And we're going to be hosting a benefit drag show here in December where all the biggest drag names in our area are going to do a benefit for our meeting center in December. So we're going to be getting the details about that during this Thursday's meeting. 
But the biggest successes that we've been seeing for that one is the youth, the youth group that have been coming in. We have about eight or 10, probably, that are under 16 years old, between 12 and 16, that come to these meetings and they're finding friends that have already transitioned. You know, out of these 10, seven have transitioned and they're 12 to 14 years old and maybe 15. And it's been amazing. The one meeting, we were all just crying <laughs> because they were all so excited and so happy that the adults were just weeping in the corner, just happy <laughs> to like bring them together. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a community. Like you said, it's a community for them. And, and they're coming in maybe wanting answers. And to see that there's other people like them, that's got to be such a satisfying feeling. And I feel for generations past who didn't get the opportunity to have that community and didn't get the opportunity to have that feeling, oh, there's someone like me and there's someone who can give me advice and help me through that. And you're right, as a parent to sit back, you know, I have a young son who is seven and I have a daughter who's four and wherever their path may take them, I know I will be a thousand percent supportive of them. But there are millions of people probably out there who didn't have that growing up and who maybe will never have that growing up. And I would love to know, do you ever think, you know, how are my meetings going to be different? How am I going to be that final stop, you know, that recovery is tomorrow and it's going to happen? Do you ever think about how you want to be the last stop before things get better? Yeah. And I've had people, you know, say the things to me that I want to hear which is, I feel so comfortable saying whatever I need to say in here. You know, that's something that I can't hear enough. You know, whether I'm talking to somebody on a podcast or whether I'm talking to somebody one-on-one where they're talking in our group, when I hear them say, I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe I'm comfortable enough to even say that. That makes me feel like, all right, I'm putting a good vibe out there that this is an accepting place. You can say something that you think is a real, like, especially with addicts, we have such shame. We carry such shame with us and guilt through addiction that it's almost like I got to disarm you by letting you know how much of a horrible person I was. Because at least if I'm so open about it, you can be like, well, if he's going to just say those things, I guess I can say those things and I'm not going to get a look. I think the show Big Mouth is perfect for how we feel inside a lot of the times. On Netflix, they have like the shame monster and all that kind of things. It follows you whenever you don't want it. And then the depression cat comes around the corner and just wants to snuggle you in bed (laughs) and just like hold you down. You know, and all those things are extremely realistic. But for me, I know I need to keep talking to people. For me to stay sober and my head to be clear, I need to just keep talking. Earlier, you had talked about a few dates that meant a lot to you. And one of the dates was leap year, February 29th, 2020. I mean, it's such a significant date for you. Can you describe how you felt when that day was over and you wanted to move on to day number two of sobriety and then you wanted to move on to day number three? Do you remember how that moment felt for you? So I'll even go back even further to April 25th, 2018, because that was my first time really doing it. I had already kind of experienced it the February 29th. I kind of knew, and I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't drinking alcoholically. That April 25th, that was like day two of waking up without pills 
you know, because I was never like the wake up and drink drinker. I was like the end my day and get sloppy drunk. But for pills, I wasn't rolling out of bed unless I was doing pills. You know, I had a straw wrapped up in my sheets so that it was that close by that I could just grab it and go in the morning. You know, it was bad. So those first few days, it was nerve wracking because I didn't know what to expect. I'm 31, almost 32 in rehab for the first time in my life. And I'm hearing all these stories of people saying, oh, it's my fifth time here. My seventh time in rehab, my third time in rehab. Nobody was there their first time. It was all their multiple time. And I'm sitting there on like a Friday night. It was like my night three of being there. And I was talking to this guy. We call him Big Mike. And he's still sober to this day. He was coming up on 10 years at the time. And we're still friends. He said, he was like, what's wrong? Like, you're in your head. Because everyone could always tell when I'm in my head because I don't talk. And if I'm not talking, <laughs> it's bad up here if I'm not talking. Yeah. So, <laughs> everyone always knew and still does. My wife always calls me out. But anyway, he knew what I was going through. And he was like, listen, like, if you're here in July still, I'll be celebrating 10 years clean and sober. I came into rehab at your age at 31 years old. It was my first time in rehab. I was in gangs all my 20s running and gunning like I was not a good person. And if I can get 10 years, you can do it too in your first try if you really want to. That definitely boosted me and gave me a little bit of a push in the right direction. And then it wasn't until I was sitting in a meeting in Santa Monica because I went to LA from Philly for rehab. You know, I found a rehab called High Sobriety, which is out in Los Angeles. It's the only sober living that allows you to use cannabis in a sober living. And they set you up with a cannabis doctor to help you change your relationship with it. So that's what I did. I saw it in a documentary and I was like, I'll go there. And for the first time in a decade, I was willing to go to rehab because of that. You know, still haven't touched pills in three and a half years. So obviously it works. Yeah, so I'm out there in Santa Monica in an NA meeting because they force you to go to meetings when you're in rehab. Like they take you to meetings. The only time you leave the rehab is to go to an out. So it gets you excited for meetings because you get to leave the house and see other people. (laughs) So I'm sitting in this meeting and this girl's talking. It was a speaker meeting. So it's 45 minutes of her just talking. She's telling her story. She was from Philly too. And she said, we have an accent. I know how I talk. And I could hear it always because I lived all over the country. So I heard her talking and I was like, oh, that sounds like Colleen, my ex that passed. And she was talking about being schizophrenic. And she was talking about hearing voices in her head. She was talking about drinking in closets until the voices went away, which is exactly what Colleen did. And she talked about if you're here, you're supposed to be here. And that you're sitting in this chair that's where you're supposed to be. And I was just bawling. I was a mess. You know, it was the first time I had like that kind of like closure from her in three years since she had died. Because when she died, I just tailspinned out into drinking, doing coke and doing pills every day, even more so than I already was. Her whole entire family was blaming me. I was blaming me. I wasn't allowed at her funeral. So I didn't get that goodbye at the funeral either. So I didn't have that closure really until like that moment. And then that's when I started buying into the program and NA and 12 Steps. Would you say they were the ones who kind of got you to open up and talk about it? Or have you always been an open book about your experiences? No, I've always been pretty open. I've always been a pretty open person, except for I'm going to tell you what I think you want to hear. 
you know, in addiction, I was open to an extent. I would tell certain people everything and then certain people nothing. And it really depended on your trust level with me and my addiction and where it was. Now I'm at the point where I broadcast my entire history of addiction every single week on my YouTube or whatever in my podcast. And I'm a completely open book when it comes to my past. I wasn't always as open because me being this open could really be detrimental to me staying in addiction. <laughs> you know, so I couldn't be this open before. I couldn't talk about suicide ideations when I was having them. I could talk about it in sobriety, but not when you're having them because you don't want to tell somebody something to have them stop you. Because that's the thing is, I didn't want somebody to stop me. When somebody's going to relapse, they don't tell you, hey, I'm going to relapse. When someone relapses, they've already relapsed in their head an hour before they do it. Before they even call their dealer, they already relapsed in their head and they're not reaching out to their sponsor because they know their sponsors are going to talk them out of it. When someone actually does reach out to me, like, hey, I don't want to use, I might relapse. I know I have like a 90% chance of talking them out of relapsing because they've already did the biggest thing and that was reaching out. That's got to be tough. <laughs> it's not easy. I haven't heard back from somebody in two months who was messaging me that he was going to kill himself. And he was messaging me from one of his fake Instagrams. I don't know his name. I know him from AA from California. I don't it's not like MySpace where I can go to his top friends and contact somebody and know that they can contact him and be like, hey, you good? This random person just met. It's not like that. I just have to go on with an unopened message in my DMs. And it is what it is. You know, if I, I would drive myself crazy if I let that, you know, steal my mind. This is what happens in recovery is we can't save everybody. And the minute we think we can is the minute that your own sobriety is at risk. So I have to be kind of morbid about it because if I'm not, it's only going to hurt. But if I can be kind of morbid about it and I know that I'm always doing my best and answering texts or answering phone calls or whatever time, whenever I can, I'm doing literally everything I can that's in my control. Anything other than that is something that I can't control and I would just upset myself greatly if I tried to control something that's I know I can't. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you're taking on too much? No. And when I do, I know that. I'm very self-aware when it comes to my time management and how I disperse my time. Time is one of those things that you can control. And one of those things that you can be like kind of nitpicky about. I can say, I'll see you in seven minutes because I know it'll take me seven minutes. Or I can say, I'll see you on the Skype in 12 hours because I know I'm going to be on the Skype in 12 hours. You know, I know to get my kid to school at 8.15 or 8.30 depends on if you eat breakfast there or at home. Time to me is something you can't control. And once you feel your schedule looking like, all right, well, I literally can't do this, then I would feel overwhelmed. But I'm an insomniac. I have plenty of time to do a lot of things. <laughs> you know, I, when I got to rehab, I told my therapist, I said, oh, I'm, I'm a night owl and I'm an early bird. She's like, you're an insomniac, honey. There's no <laughs> such thing as both. <laughs> yeah, I asked a guest one time, I said, what keeps you up at night? And they said, oh, I don't go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, your podcast, when I listen to your guests and what they've been through, Nicole's story really stuck out. And she said, the main thing for me was the foundation. Oh, there was an amazing transformation with Nicole, whereas before and after... And she was in sex trafficking? Yes. Wow. So happy for her after. Because I cannot imagine everything she went through. Again, just like you, she was an open book. And she talks so much about how she knew she needed that start. And 
with Nicole's story, are you hearing a lot of stories like hers? Or is every story kind of a unique journey in themselves? So there are stories like hers where to the point where one girl even came back on to be more open. I had a girl on to tell her story. And then like a week later, and we talked for an hour and 45 minutes. It was a fun episode. But a week later, she was like, hey, I skipped a lot of crucial things. And I kind of want to talk about it. And it was sex trafficking. And that is a common thing that's even been talked about on episodes that I've had to take out where they didn't want that aired because they weren't ready for that part to be aired yet. And we've talked about it to the point where like women stay in addiction sometimes longer because it's easier to get money or get things that they want as opposed to me being an overweight guy. I can't offer the same things that some women can. And this is them telling me this. One of them even had the like epiphany like, Oh, oh my God. No wonder why my boyfriend always had me doing that scam with the gift cards. I'm like, yeah, no one's going to say yes to my scam, but they're going to be distracted. It's it's why the Yankees have pinstripes. It's a distraction. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's that whole thing. Yeah. It's from Catch Me If You Can. You know, that, that con artist movie, Leonardo DiCaprio, is that always said it's why the Yankees have pinstripes. Yeah. You know, and it's the same idea. It's to take away from what you're actually doing to take your focus elsewhere while we actually take you over here. And I watch a lot of con artist movies. That's exactly why you send in the pretty girl to do a scam. Like, will you exchange cash for my gift card? You know, that's something that they're going to say no to me, you weirdo. And the girl is like batting her eyelash. They're like, yeah, sure, honey. You know, that's fine. You know, and not even think about it. So the sex trafficking is definitely a huge thing that I hear about all the time. Definitely a common theme. But there's also, you know, I talked to a woman last week that didn't want her identity out there. And it was the first time that I had that. And her story was the tamest story out of all the stories. However, it is probably the most relatable story for any mother out there. The reason she didn't want her identity out there, she's 11 years sober. And there's such a stigma with moms and how it's acceptable to drink wine as long as after five, as long as you had a hard day, you were in that wine. I earned that pill too. I had a long day, but I shouldn't have done the pills every single day. Why is mine bad and yours is okay? It's not. Such a good point. <laughs> but society makes it okay. Desperate housewives made it okay. Fun memes about wine makes it okay. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Sunday brunches and whatever, rosé. All day. Yeah, makes it okay. Wow. But me doing pills all day isn't okay. You know, me even smoking weed all day isn't okay. I would never want even want to use it that way. You know, doing anything in excess is not okay most of the time. That's so true. Even running all day is not going to be good for you. We were talking and she was like, listen, I can't have that out there. You know, there's so many like still moms and still my son won't understand because she said she didn't drink when she was pregnant with them, but she couldn't breastfeed. So she started drinking again rather quickly. And she's like, there's a lot of nights that I couldn't remember if I changed them at 3 a.m. or not. I didn't remember because I was still drunk from that night when it was changing time and feeding time at 2 a.m. I'd wake up at six and be like, did I do that? Because she would still be under her fog of being drunk from that night. And it was completely acceptable, but it's not. So she didn't want her identity out there. Nicole, like you said, is so open. It's like, yeah, they sold my body for drugs all up and down Ohio. Yeah, put my identity out there. 
And then the mom, who was the tamest of drinkers, who only drank after five, was like, please just do audio because I don't want people knowing. And that's what alcohol can do as opposed to drug addicts. We're already junkies. We, you can say whatever you want about us. So we're just going to take it by now. But alcohol, just like, oh, no, she's just a mom. She's allowed to drink that much. Wow, what a good point. What a strong point. I mean, I think rock bottom looks different for everybody. And it's what they're going through at that time. But when you see that individual start to come to your meetings, is there a, a more common rock bottom, should I say? Or at what point do people say, listen, I need help? Because for you earlier, you'd mentioned, you know, you're sick of being hungover. I mean, I'm sure there's more to it. But at what point are they coming to you to these meetings to say, I'm ready? I'm ready to change. Everyone has different opinions on rock bottoms in the programs, depends on the program. And everyone in recovery has different opinions. I personally think that we all have different speed bumps, things that look like bottoms, whether it's losing a job, losing a family, going to jail, DUI, all that kind of stuff. People would say, oh, that's your bottom. That's your bottom. Those are not bottoms. Those are speed bumps along the way to the bottom. I truly think everyone's bottom is the same. Everyone's bottom is that willingness to walk through the door to say, I need help. That day that I say, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this on my own. Please help me. I want help. That's my bottom, me asking for help. My bottom wasn't getting arrested a month before I went into rehab. I still used, I went to court high as a kite. You know what I mean? It wasn't going to prevent me from getting high anymore. I was still getting high, even though I got arrested. Going to rehab was my bottom because it was me saying, I don't want to do this, but I don't know how to do this. Teach me how to live a life. Give me suggestions. I'll take them. Surrendering to 12 steps is my bottom. Asking for help. There's people that I see that are nine months sober grabbing chips every single week, but don't have a sponsor, aren't working steps. They're just showing up to meetings and just, you know, talking and chatting just to make some friends, which is good. Fellowshipping is good. It's important. But you still haven't surrendered. You're still barely accepting the fact that you're an alcoholic if you won't work the steps. So if you haven't done that surrendering, how much acceptance have you done? And have you really hit your bottom yet? You know, there's people I see all the time that are abstinent, but they're not actually trying to live differently. They're just living life without alcohol or drugs but they're not actually putting in any work to change. You know, alcohol and drugs weren't my problem for 20 years. We talked about it. They were the solution to my problems. Life still happens. I still had problems. My wife wasn't diagnosed with MS and addiction. She was diagnosed in sobriety. Getting high and getting drunk is not going to fix her. Being sober and being there for her is going to give her support and help. So there's a lot of things that people can get misconstrued and they think, oh, just because you put down drinking or drugs, you think your life's completely different now. No, you just lost a huge solution to all your problems. So how are you going to deal with your problems now? Because problems aren't going to stop happening. The 12-step program, for those of you who don't know, and I'm admittedly one of them, has it changed and evolved over the years, this program, these steps? What has it looked like in the past? What does it look like now? And it worked for you and it probably worked for a lot of people that you know going through these programs, but has it evolved at all? Yes and no. NA isn't as old as AA. NA has been around for like 40, I think 50 years or something like that. AA has been around since 1935. 
AA kind of took what other groups were using and made the steps. The steps can be used in every situation. So when you say they evolved, they kind of have because now you have all these new groups. Now there's codependency, there's sex and love, there's cocaine anonymous, there's meth anonymous. There's so many different anonymous groups that use the steps. But the most crucial thing is to know about the steps is the word alcohol is only used one time. And that's in the first step. And that's in like the fifth word. Everyone always thinks, watch, what's the first step? Christine, what do you think the first step is? Admitting that there's a problem. But there's a semicolon. And no one knows about the semicolon. And it was, it made my life unmanageable. That's the key part is the unmanageability. And I hung on to that unmanageability for nine months of drinking where my life wasn't unmanageable. So I'm not drinking alcoholically, you know, and I held on to that. But as soon as I woke up with that first hangover is when I said, okay, now it's unmanageable. Now I'm done. That is so important because everyone who has never been through the steps, when you ask them, what's the first step? Like an auto response. Admit it's the first step. The first step is I had a problem with alcohol and my life was unmanageable. But you can take that word alcohol and put food. You can put an ex's name in there. Whatever makes your life unmanageable, if you're late for work, you're calling out of work, your bank account is drained, whatever is making your life unmanageable, you can do the steps on. Because the rest of the steps are to figure out a, you know, a way of living with that unmanageability. The biggest steps are like the fourth step. The fourth step is writing down a list of resentments. And not only resentments, it's the resentments. And then you break down like, okay, I have a resentment against my dad. Why do I have a resentment against my dad? Well, he wouldn't let me do this. What did it affect? It had affected my money, my purse. And what part did I have in my resentment with my dad? Well, I was bad. So I had all these rules. So you figure out what your part is in all of these resentments that you have against other people. And then most importantly, you have to figure out all the resentments you have against yourself and all the things you don't like about yourself. Self-accountability. And then step five. Step five is telling your list to your sponsor and saying these things out loud. So making amends at eight and nine is important, writing your list to make amends and saying your sorries. But that four and five is something I have to do every single day is figure out my resentments. Somebody cut me off. You know, I resent that person. Why? Why did that affect me? And I have to get through it real fast so I'm not upset about things. I keep myself even by doing the steps daily because if not, they're going to build up and then I'll explode (laughs) and then I'll burst. But yeah, the 12 steps can be done by anybody. Well, would you say there is a step that has been the most challenging for you? Three. And it was because your acceptance with your higher power. I had a lot of problems with saying God early on. And my sponsor was really adamant about me saying, let go and let God in order to move on. And I, I didn't want to. I grew up Catholic and you know, I just had a bad taste in my mouth. You know, I went to Catholic school for a little bit. Nothing happened to me, but there are way too many stories. I just, no, it wasn't for me. And then I was in addiction. I lost my fiance. I lost my best friend to a car accident. You know, I lost a lot of people. So you lose faith to along that way. Instead of doing step three by saying, let go, let God, I made a deal with my sponsor. I would get let it be tattooed on my arm. That's how hard I would commit to step three is I would get let it be 
because I love the Beatles. So that's why I have that on my arm, the Let It Be. So JD, I got to tell you, I love the Beatles as well. And I too have Let It Be tattooed on my rib. Do you really? I do. Hand to God. I have Penny Lane as well. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and actually, my Howard Power now to this day is actually Bill Murray. That wonderful guy, but... <laughs> You know, it's blurry on the screen a little bit, but I was going to ask what that painting was behind you. I met, an, I met an artist in AA when I was out in California. We used to do AA meetings in her front yard. She actually has a recovery there now in Venice called Muck Recovery. And she's a muralist that's pretty famous. She actually did these bunnies yeah. right there. Her name is Muckrock, and she's all over my arms. She's done 20 of my 40 tattoos. And that's her right there, the Bill Murray as Jesus. And that one also, that's my, I used to do comedy. So that's my Mount Rushmore comedians with Carlin, Seinfeld, Pryor, and Chappelle. Awesome. She did too for me. I met her out there in AA. And so I got really, I was like, hey, I need you to do a Bill Murray Jesus for me. She's like, I'm on it. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. She had that out to me within two weeks. (laughs) But yeah, she's been through here. She's from California and she does painting all over the world. And when are you going to, are you going to pick up comedy again? I've been trying to start a club where we are actually. I'm in the process, the beginning process of starting a club um, called Mad Hatter's Comedy Club and bring comedy to where we are in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. Like our town's known for a college. We have a pretty big state college here. (laughs) We have a uh, fair a giant fair that's here every year. It's so big that the school was shut down that there's no school the week of the fair because everyone's at the fair. The traffic is just... So that's like what our town's claim to fame is. There's a lot of bars here. There's a lot of meth here. But I'm trying to start a comedy club and I'm kind of waiting for recreational cannabis to be passed because I'm not going to have alcohol served in the comedy club, but I'm going to allow consumption and I'm going to have big goods for sale during the comedy shows because nothing's worse than a bunch of drunks at a comedy club. Trust me. I hate the drinking at comedy clubs. Hecklers. Hecklers. That's all it brings. Everyone gets drunk and they think they're the funniest person in the room, but they won't get on stage. (laughs) They want to sit in their chair and yell. (laughs) You give people some brownies, they're not getting up. They're just going to be laughing. (laughs) (laughs) You know? You got a good concept there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy that that's what you're getting into because you're doing some awesome things with your facility, your nonprofit facility. And I was looking up a bunch of statistics before we got in the call and drugabusestatistics.org said that 19.4% of people has used illicit drugs at least once. And illicit drugs referring to highly addictive drugs. So heroin, meth, You know, what was shocking to me is a lot of the statistics started to show significance at the age of 12. Way when we first started talking, I mean, you were talking about 12 is really when you realized that there was an addiction and and that's kind of when it all started. So when I was reading up on substance abuse disorders and how it affects over 20 million Americans age 12 and over, I was mind blown. And the fact that you've had so many hardships and you've been through so much and everything that you've shared with us today, I am thankful for your transparency. And I'm thankful that you and your wife started a welcoming place where everybody is welcome and you can share your experience and you listen to theirs and that there's kids that come that see other kids like them. I mean, 
That really, really touched me. I wish we had more of that. And I'm sure there are more out there, but what can we do to help you? What can we do to help spread that love and help spread that visibility to your facility? Right now, what I've been doing is I do my podcast that you said you, you know, been checking out. It's called MJ's Progress Not Perfection. We're on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Facebook. And I talk to a different addict or alcoholic every week about their experience. And you do find out a lot of them start around 12. There's been as early as five. The earliest that I've heard on an episode is five. And that's only because he was being forced the drugs at five so that they could take advantage of him. Oh, gosh. You know, his stepfather and his aunt. And that went on for five years. And that's the kind of stuff that I hear sometimes that just like, you know, it's a lot. But also there's a lot of ones where I relate the entire time. You know, the episode that I put up today is a new episode. I met this guy in a Facebook group with 75,000 people in it. Neither of us posted anything. We were chatting in the comments about the post. It was about Bill Murray, actually. The post was about our higher powers. So he was commenting about my Bill Murray and we just got to talking. He did my podcast. Turns out he was two miles from me in Jersey the entire time we were both doing the same drug together. We were both in active addiction at the same time within two miles of each other. But we met in this Facebook group. So he did two episodes with me. And that was a very fun conversation just because we're the same age and the same drugs and the same spot. And we just didn't know each other. So we could relate a lot. But yeah, we, we run on donations. We are not trust fund babies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my wife and I, we are not that at all. We started this with our stimulus money. That's why it was in May when we started this. It was stimulus money. And we got really lucky with the building. My building, the meeting center is the sponsor of my podcast because that's how we drive donations. So sometimes people donate 5, 10, 15, 20. It goes towards our electric bill, our internet bill and paying the rent because it's not that expensive to do all this. It's only $750 a month. You know what I mean? It's not that much to do all this. It's not like... And we're in a 2,100 square foot building. So we got a really good deal on where we are. We're in an old newspaper press. There's all the old presses still downstairs in the basement from 1900. Oh, that's neat. It's really cool stuff. They can't get it out. There's really cool like history to this building. And we like that. To think that like I'm reporting on a podcast what's going on in the real world in the same place where they're reporting stuff like the stock exchange in 1929. Like That's awesome to me. I love that kind of stuff. And I want to start a local news podcast because my wife always reads me the paper. And I always just grunt and just go on rants about it the entire time in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do, yeah. <laughs> so we wanted to do something like that because her desk is right across from mine where she does hers. And we were just going to do a back and forth where she's just getting me going with my rants, reading the local news and stuff like that, just to have some of that history of what we're doing in here. We just love being part of the community. You know, we're part of the LGBTQ. We, Like I said, we're part of Outfest. They're doing a drag show here. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under MJ's Progress Not Perfection to find all of our links to, you know, my podcast to watch or listen or my wife's or, you know, if you want to do a donation, anything helps. We appreciate anything and everything. That's for sure. It's just her and myself and we have our seven-year-old five days a week that's in second grade and I got to pick him up from school soon and... I'll take him home and then I'll come back to the meeting center and I'll get back to editing because I just started a new podcast um, called Pods Fly Together. And it's on the sports network in Philly. 
called A2D Radio, which are huge. They have 100,000 followers and they have a huge following. And it's going to be me and a guest breaking down our favorite sports movies every week. So each guest picks their favorite sports movie and we talk about it for an hour. And I talk about sports in general with them and like growing up around sports with it and just have fun with it. I love talking to people, whether it's about sports or addiction or cartoons or comedy. I just like to nerd out about things that I like. <laughs> and that's what that's I- awesome. Yeah, you got a lot going on. If, if there's anyone who is listening to the podcast who might be struggling themselves with addiction or might know someone who is struggling, what words of advice do you have to offer support? If you're the one that is struggling watching somebody in addiction, you're not in addiction yourself and you are just watching them and you don't know what to do, all you can do is go to Al-Anon or Naranon. Those are meetings they are meant for people that are support groups for somebody who has a loved one in addiction. Because until the addict comes to you and says, I want help, that's the key word is want. You know, I learned early on, I was a month sober. My friend kept relapsed and she relapsed twice in my first 40 days. And I met her in rehab. We're still good friends to this day. And she has over a year sober now. She's doing great. But at the time, she was a mess. We're sitting outside the sober living. She's getting ready to get sent back to detox again for her other relapse. She was crying saying, I don't know why I can't get this. I need to get this right. I can't get it. I don't know what's going on. And I just said, well, what do you mean you need to do this? She's like, my parents, they want me to be sober. Like I was like, okay, well, that's the problem. Like I want to be here. I don't need to be here. No one's making me be here. I want this. I want to be sober. So until you actually hear somebody say want and not need, when someone's saying they need to be clean or need to be sober, it's always for somebody else. It's for their family. It's for the cops. It's for somebody else. They don't even realize. But when somebody says to you subconsciously, not even realizing it, oh, I want this, they own that. They're accepting things. They own it. They want it. They work harder for it. So you can do interventions, kind of force them into rehabs. It works for some people. It just, you know, John Mulaney, famous comedian, he was, you know, kind of cornered into an intervention, you know, this time last year, actually, almost exactly a year ago, he was cornered into an intervention by all his closest friends and it worked. But that's also, he came off of a lot of years of sobriety and he was only about a month into active addiction again before they, you know what I mean? So they caught him early. Sometimes you catch an addict further on, they found a way to live without you because they have the drug again. I always say pills are my first love. Pills are my first love. My first fiance is my second love and my first wife is my third love. And it's because I had a woman that came into a meeting that was for supporting families. And the woman said to me, I don't know, understand my son. He's 34 and for 15 years, he's been doing heroin and I can't stop them. And I don't get it. I've tried everything. And I said to her, have you ever been in an, a relationship with a guy where your parents were telling you that he's not right for you? And you would say, you don't understand. You don't know what it's like when we're together. He's really great. And he makes me feel this way. And he's the first person that did this for me. And the first person, that's how we are with drugs. That drug is the first person that made me feel that way. The first thing that made me take me out of somewhere. The first one to give me confidence. The first one that would nestle me to sleep every night to tell me that I'm everything I needed to be. I would do anything for that drug. That drug came first to me because it was there for me always when I needed it. 
and people weren't. And just like those bad relationships where you're being gaslit and being verbally abused, but you see all the good things, this is an abusive relationship that we enter into where it's hard for us to detach from because we see all the good things in it. We see all the like the way, the warmth. You know, I watched that show Dope Sick on Hulu and I've only been triggered once so far. And the only time I've been triggered is because Michael Keaton did a line he like snorted a line of a pill and the way he sat back, I could feel that heaviness. I know that heaviness of sitting back on your couch after doing a line off the coffee table. I lived that. I knew that feeling. And I said to my wife, well, I'm triggered, but I'm good because I said it out loud. You know, you're only really triggered for long if you keep it in because then that's when your mind starts taking you elsewhere. But if you say it out loud, it's real and you've, you're now talking about it and it's not as much power over you. Those relationships, those abusive relationships that we get in with women and men, it's the same thing as it is with addiction. So you have to remember when you're talking to that person that is an, an addict, they love that drug like you would love somebody in a bad relationship where you're free to leave that relationship and start a new one with somebody else because that's the safe relationship for you. And they don't even know any of this in addiction either. Don't even tell them that you understand that part of it because they won't even get that until they're about two years sober. Trust me, because I didn't. It took a lot of work for me to see it that way now. You know, I had a breakup song. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was Slow Dancing in a Burning Room by John Mayer. That was my breakup song, The Pills, because that's how I felt. Wow. Well, I'm glad you put that work in. You are doing amazing things for your community. You found love again, and you two are opening your hearts and your stories and you're sharing it with so many people and you're allowing those people to feel comfortable and to feel like they have a home that they're welcome in. And I love that you did that. I love that you reached out when I was asking for a guest. Your story has really opened my eyes. It made me look up so many more statistics and I've read so many articles and really I'm not going to say I'm an expert because I'm super far from that, but I'm just more aware today than I was yesterday. And I appreciate that. And I want to thank you for that. And JD, I'm going to put all of those links that you mentioned onto my website. And I hope that if someone is out there struggling or knows someone who's struggling, that this conversation with JD has helped and it's helped you just realize what maybe the next step is. And it's that want yourself over that need for others. So JD, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything you're doing. I wish you all the best with your center and your community. And thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing your story today. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure it was to have JD as a guest on the Give Back Model podcast. And as he details, you have to want to be active and committed in your road to recovery. And as a support system, we must be mindful that it's not about our needs. We need to be active listeners. We need to let them know that we are there for them. And we need to ask what we can do better to be a support system for them. And as a community, we need to recognize the warning signs. We need to become more educated on mental illness and addiction. We need to open up those lines of communication. But most importantly, and most importantly of all, we need to be supportive and accepting of our friends, our family members, and our communities, and our neighbors. We need to spread more love. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of The Give Back Model. Please head over to your listening avenue of choice and leave a review, like, subscribe, follow, and check out our website, thegivebackmodel.com for more episodes, show notes on each guest, and the Give Back Model merchandise where $5 from every hoodie sold goes to charity. 
I appreciate all your support and continue to help give back to your community.